For the whole of the last century, the church has been in retreat, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of um, a, a changing culture, uh, where once the church could claim to be at the heart of our culture, uh, we see our culture drifting away, and the divide between sacred and secular uh, grows ever wider. It increasingly feels like this is a country where it's hard to be a Christian, because there are... Um, uh, uh, many forces which seem to be opposed to it, whether that be the sort of uh, intellectual climate, the forces of uh, secularism and rationalism and uh, uh, science which uh, seem to be used as tools against religion, or whether it's the forces of, say, political correctness which uh, increasingly seem to legislate that um, uh, there can be no distinction between Christians and others so that uh, schools who want to uh, employ simply Christian teachers um, will find themselves with the law against them. There's the irony of um, uh, the intolerance of the, the pluralism, which is the, the norm, uh, which now means that it's uh, almost unacceptable to claim that uh, Christianity has anything exclusive about it. And perhaps, too, there's that sort of bland repackaging of Christianity which makes it simply a, a self-help tool, um, uh, uh, just another product to, to make uh, an individual's life better without it having any real impact on our society or the way that we live out our lives together. Whatever it is, it's not too hard to, um, uh, uh, to feel like um, Christianity is uh, increasingly sort of oppressed and marginalised by our society. And um, uh, not a very big step from there for us to have a real longing for um, God to vindicate the church. God to sort of stand up for it and uh, to show that it's somehow special and that what it has is unique and uh, distinct from everything else. But if you've ever had those sort of feelings, it isn't too hard for you to understand how the Jews of Jesus' day felt. They were... Uh, God's chosen people, um, and yet they were oppressed and marginalised by the society that they were part of. They were ruled over by um, a, a, a pagan uh, empire who uh, had no real concern for their values or beliefs and certainly saw nothing unique about them. They were oppressed um, uh, economically and politically and spiritually, and there would have been a real longing by the Jews of Jesus' day uh, for God to vindicate them. But this story from Luke's Gospel, um, as part of this series, um, uh, looking at the, the unique character and flavour of uh, this particular Gospel, a series called The People's Republic of Heaven, uh, this is uncomfortable reading. It was a, an uncomfortable uh, um, uh, encounter for the Jews of, uh, of Jesus' day, and uh, I fear it's an uncomfortable uh, thing for us to understand too. So this passage from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14, tells the story of um, Jesus returning to his hometown um, after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. He uh, returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spreads throughout the whole countryside and he taught in the synagogues and everyone praised him. And then one Sabbath he returns to his home synagogue and there is his uh, extended family and his community amongst whom he grew up. And in a, a moment of real drama, uh, he stands up to read from the scriptures. And um, in verse 17, it says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to, handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus takes these words from that majestic book of Isaiah that we studied uh, a few months ago, from Isaiah chapter 61, and he applies them to himself. And they are words of such um, awesome significance. We're going to see a very strong reaction from the people who are listening to him. And in order to understand that, we need to understand something of the significance of the words that he said. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, we take for granted this idea um, of God putting his Holy Spirit upon people. Um, Post-Pentecost, um, the church uh, has been able to speak um, about the Holy Spirit being given to anyone and everyone. But um, uh, that's not how uh, it was in the Old Testament, and certainly not at Jesus' day. The Spirit was only really given to people of great significance. There were kings, or prophets, or high priests, and it was a, uh, an indication of someone who was of prime significance in the purposes of God. Next he says that because he's anointed me. Anointing, again, is one of those signs of kingship. When King David was made king, uh, precious oils uh, were poured upon him. And it was a sign of uh, anointing, of being chosen. Jesus is uh, claiming these uh, messianic phrases, these, uh, uh, um, these words which indicate being the chosen one of God. And of course applies them to himself. And what's this chosen one going to be? What's this Messiah going to do? Well, he's going to um, preach good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Release for the oppressed. And proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now there's still a, a real tendency, and I see it even um, in good commentaries, uh, to put extra words into this phrase. Um, uh, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the spiritually poor. To uh, proclaim freedom for the spiritual prisoners. Recovery of sight for the spiritually blind. And release for the spiritually oppressed. Um, now, it's not that this doesn't have spiritual implications, but I think that's um, a, a bit lazy. Um, and uh, if you were with us through the Isaiah series, you'll uh, have seen that the scope of the kingdom of God, which was prophesied there, wasn't simply a spiritual kingdom. It was a restoration of the whole of humanity and society, of economics and politics. It was a restoration of creation to um, uh, reflect the way God had created it to be. And we together have been um, learning to uh, look once more at what the kingdom of God actually is all about. Uh, the scope of this kingdom. We've had to be learning to move beyond the understanding simply of personal salvation. And recognise that um, uh, God's kingdom uh, has implications for the whole, not only of our lives, but of our society and of our world. It's uh, a wonderfully uh, majestic picture of God's plan and intentions. And the phrase which absolutely convinces me of that is um, this phrase at the end, that uh, he has come uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now the year of the Lord's favour is not an abstract uh, uh, term. It uh, points to an Old Testament concept, one which is uh, quite well known, 
but in reality was never uh, actually put into practice. It's the concept of jubilee. It was um, set in place uh, uh, for that uh, new nation of Israel when they entered the Promised Land. It was a land where um, uh, uh, the, 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 the land was uh, uh, split up fairly so that everybody had enough, uh, that nobody was uh, poor, and um, uh, Jubilee was the thing that was intended to keep it that way. So that over the course of uh, every 50 years, if people had had to sell their land and uh, had got into debt or even had to sell themselves into slavery, that once every 50 years, Jubilee would be proclaimed. And everything would be uh, reset to how it was. The, uh, the slaves would be set free again. Uh, those who were poor would have their land restored to them. It's a beautiful uh, concept and deeply challenging. Um, and uh, what, of course, I think is most significant about it is Israel could never put it into practice. They could never give up uh, their wealth. They could never, uh, for, the intention, for, the, for the sake of uh, God, uh, reset things to how they were supposed to be. And I'm really taken with this uh, uh, concept. This is a beautiful picture of what uh, the gospel and what the kingdom of God is all about. It is the proclamation of Jubilee. It is that concept um, uh, which never uh, could happen um, put into reality. And uh, it has implications on the whole of our lives. When we proclaim the kingdom of God, we are proclaiming Jubilee. I think it's interesting that um, we can understand this concept of jubilee when it's applied to um, our um, moral life. Um, if we're Christians, we understand that um, uh, our sin is forgiven, um, not based on uh, anything that we've done, but based on the grace of God. Um, we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, and that's the jubilee principle. Nobody earns anything. Nobody uh, has any right to anything. But the grace of God overflows so that we find forgiveness. But of course the Jubilee principle doesn't simply apply to forgiveness. It applies to um, every aspect of life. Our economics, the way we treat uh, the poor and the marginalised. And um, uh, uh, though we can understand how it works in terms of forgiveness, we find it very hard to apply it to anything else. Um, an American theologian said that um, the taboo subject in American Christianity, and I suspect there's some truth here too. The taboo subject is not uh, sex, nor is it politics, but it's economics. The one thing that cannot be questioned is capitalism. And the concept of Jubilee does just that. Now all of that's um, uh, clearly exciting, significant, concerning, but um, uh, uh, the thing that's most interesting about this passage is the response of Jesus' people to what he has to say. And um, uh, in verse 22, uh, you see a, a mixed reaction to Jesus' words. Um, it says, uh, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. It is a, a very mixed reaction. All spoke well of him. And uh, we're amazed by the gracious words, or perhaps uh, words of grace would be a, a better way to articulate that. He, Jesus, um, who began by quoting Isaiah 61, would have been speaking of the grace of God, um, uh, speaking of something of what we know, um, but um, uh, applying it um, uh, to a much wider uh, sphere of life than we've ever begun to do so. They were amazed by the words of grace that he spoke, and yet um, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? 
what that question what that question essentially means is who does this guy think he is joseph who was a, a man of some faith um uh, and a, a good man on many levels, but was um, uh, just an ordinary man, was a, a carpenter of no great significance, a part of this community who knew his place and um, uh, lived and died within it. Um, they're asking the question, isn't this Joseph's son? Shouldn't he simply accept his place? Who is this uh, man, to, who is this Jesus to uh, say that he is something more than this? There are within these words uh, seeds of cynicism, and of doubt. And Jesus' response to them is um, strong, uh, but also reveals that um, he never really uh, imagined that he was going to be accepted um, as who he was by his uh, hometown. He, um, he begins by saying, um, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Um, this idea that uh, uh, they are expecting him to prove himself to them, to, to put them in a, a place of judging him, where they can analyse his miracles and his words and make their own decision about him, to put themselves in a position of strength. And that's ne never an option with Jesus. Um, and in actual fact, the miracles, the miracles never prove any, anything or convince anyone. Faith comes first. But the crunch comes, the climax of this story is when Jesus reminds them of two stories from their own history. He um, tells them stories of uh, Elijah and Elisha, two of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Two prophets who, ironically, were never really accepted by their own people. And um, in telling these stories, Jesus clearly allies himself with them. He puts himself, himself on a, a level with them, provocative as that is. The two stories are of um, the widow of Zarephath and um, Naaman the Syrian, two figures um, who became uh, 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 um, central to God's plan at uh, key moments in the unveiling of his story. Uh, two figures um, who were um, uh, blessed by God and um, uh, made of deep significance and uh, two figures who most markedly were not Jewish. The widow of Zarephath. Jesus says there were many widows in Israel at the time, but God chose one from outside um, to become this key player in the story. Um, uh, uh, she was a woman of no great significance, a, a poor woman uh, who was about to starve to death, actually. And um, uh, God's blessing fell upon her. And the thing which set her apart from the, all the other widows in Israel was her faith. that She trusted God when nobody else did. The second story is of Naaman the Syrian. Uh, perhaps this story is even more significant. Naaman was the commander of the enemy armies, um, and uh, uh, yet he trusted God and was blessed by him and saw his uh, leprosy healed. Both of them are outsiders. Both of them are people who were viewed by great suspicion by all of the proper Jews of the day. Uh, both of them became central to God's plans and were blessed by him. And confronted by these two stories, two stories which show that um, uh, God is not partisan, God is not primarily interested in uh, uh, Jews over Gentiles or uh, people who um, are historically his people over others. Confronted by these two stories, Jesus' own people are furious. Furious in the extreme to the extent that uh, uh, they want to push him over a cliff to get rid of him. 
What is it about this encounter which so infuriates them, which generates such uh, intense rage? Well, I think it's this. That that message of grace, which at first is so appealing, that message of the outrageous generosity of God and um, his love uh, for um, all of us, actually is profoundly challenging. Because what it's saying is that the gospel, the kingdom, uh, this year of Jubilee isn't simply for them. It's not simply for us. It's not simply in order to meet their needs, to make their lives better. In fact, it is something deeply uncomfortable. It overrides all of their prejudice, their selfishness, their xenophobia. It challenges the very identity which they hold as so precious. It takes away everything that they thought made them special and puts them simply on a level with everybody else. And it has implications on the way that they live out every aspect of their lives. And God is not simply interested in vindicating uh, these people, um, in showing that they have the, the way, the truth and the life. He's not uh, simply interested in uh, uh, meeting their immediate needs and uh, uh, the things that really matter to them. In fact, um, he is challenging them to be part of something uh, so much bigger. Grace is not just something that's for us. It is not just something that we receive. It is something that we live out. And um, uh, receiving God's grace is only the first step in starting to live out God's grace. The church should not simply be a place where we come to, uh, uh, to receive that grace, but a place where together we live out that grace, that generosity, that love for outsiders and aliens, that love even for enemies. And therefore the role of the church in our society is uh, never to stand up for our rights and fight for our own uh, significance and dignity, but is to reflect that loving, selfless, gracious goodness of God. My great fear is that the gospel has been um, neutered in recent church history, that we've allowed it to become about personal peace and happiness and fulfilment for a few, instead of this remarkable concept of the year of Jubilee. And we need to, um, to continue this process of, um, of essentially growing up in our faith. Um, of moving from that really important um, foundation of personal salvation, but continuing to, um, uh, to grow into this understanding of our role as a community, as a, a church within this nation and within this world, who uh, don't simply proclaim personal salvation, but proclaim the kingdom of God, proclaim that year of jubilee. I was talking to someone yesterday about um, what stories, what gospel stories we most relate to, and they'd um, been around a church uh, for a long time. And they were saying that um, the story which had always been important to them was the story of the, the prodigal son, you know, the, you know, the one, the, the son who rejects his father, takes his inheritance, goes off, spends it, um, uh, ends up destitute, and his father welcomes, his back, welcomes him back, a statement of um, uh, God's um, acceptance of us despite our sinfulness. Now that's a, a, a beautiful story and one of deep significance to many of us. But we don't get to stay the prodigal. We don't get to stay the prodigal. And as we uh, grow up into the grace of God, as we understand this, um, uh, this new economy of grace, 
we need to move from being people who see ourselves as the prodigal to perhaps people who recognise this uh, calling of Jesus. That we, following in his footsteps, are those upon whom the Spirit of the Lord is poured out, who are anointed by God, who preach good news to the poor and proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, release to the oppressed, those who proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, who proclaim jubilee.